Hello and welcome to the Wizards of Drivel podcast. I'm joined by Chris Brammer. Hello there, Dave. <laughs> and we'll be dissecting an actual proper Stoke win, a game oh. where Stoke scored more goals than the other team. <laughs> How about that? Come it's, on. It's something new to talk about, isn't it? It's lovely. Yeah, can't wait. Uh, in the second half of the episode, we'll be speaking to John Leonard, author of Fair Game Tackling Politics in Sport, about politics in sport. It's a great conversation we had with with a fellow Stoke fan who, who definitely knew his onions about that topic, so that'll be coming up a bit later. But for now, Chris, mm. we won 1-0. We won a game uh, of Hughes football. In. Hughes in now, right? That's how it works. Yeah, exactly. That's how it works. You uh, change your position based purely on the results that happen rather than a critical analysis of football and evidence. But yeah, no, but critical like, analysis like... is for nerds and losers. <laughs> yeah, Just exactly. like we we won. So um, well, let's talk, let's talk about the the overall policy, uh, positives aside from the the actual result. Uh, I think. Pretty much everyone had had this down as a much-needed win. It wasn't a win we were expected to get. Watford are going very well in the league. They should have, you know, battered Chelsea. And we've gone there and and we've pretty much halted them in their tracks. It was fantastic defensive display. Ryan Shawcross, you know, what a guy Ryan Shawcross is. Absolutely just magnificent. And to think... He's been at the club 10 years now and people have been writing him off yep. time after time after time. Just pulls out a man-of-the-match performance right out of the bag. Um, aside from that first goal for Darren Fletcher, a lovely little strike on the edge of the area. Um, it was great to see Shaq back. Shaq got the assist for that goal. And, you know, we've also created two chances we really should have scored right at the end there one for Saido Berahino one for Charlie Adam <laughs> Chris it could have been 3-0 it, it could have it could have and it, if, if it had been 3-0 that would have really been a bit of a I don't know disservice to Watford because it probably wouldn't have been a deserved 3-0 but god oh, that Charlie Adams shot like <laughs> oh I, I'm like still cringing a little bit oh god, how He's, he's, he... close. he's close. He's closer to the goal he, there. He's he's shot from further away with more players in between, and like at the one time he decides to go round the keeper and shoot into an open net, he doesn't even get it on target. Oh, it was a. I mean, look, it's a really fantastic win, like you say. Watford have been great in the league this season, um, and. Uh, I had written that off as a as a loss yesterday. I didn't think we'd get anything from it, um, and for us to go there and really, really grind out mm. a result, um, it, it definitely wasn't the most entertaining game of football. We were absolute shit houses, uh, yeah. And and there's a part of me, quite a big part of me, that absolutely loves that we. When we do that, it's ace. When Bournemouth mm. do it, they're they're absolute dicks. But yeah, when they we are, do though. it, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah, so it's it's an unexpected three points um, from me. But I mean, yeah, look, you can't you can't complain. It's a Stoke win on the road, and the the old cliche of it's always hard to pick up a win away from home in the Premier League. You know, mm. sometimes rings true and. It's therefore a bit of a shock that we got a result, and it should be celebrated that the goal that we scored was a very well worked goal. Um, it yeah. was quite clear that we, yeah, we'd worked on that in the week, which is good because I don't think if we if we take advantage of set pieces, then that's a bit of an equaliser for us because goodness knows we're not too good at creating them from open play. But yeah, apart from two chances that then go missing, that get missed, so yeah. never mind. I think I think uh, most people have seen yesterday as a case of the ends justifying the means, because, like, just think of last episode and all the criticisms we had of Stoke, and they they were numerous and many. Uh, I'm not saying like one performance has undone most of them, if any, but what we did get yesterday was a demonstration of fight and. Uh, defensive organisation. Now, if 
if that just happened for that one game and we go back to being you know a leaky sieve then that's obviously worry but it's given us like optimism that going forward we won't be as torn apart as easily we've could because we've shown against good players Watford have good players that we can get organized and grind out a result and the 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 big unanswerable now is is this a turning point or is it just you know a flash in the pan result you certainly hope it's a turning point um but there are still numerous issues that we need to work on we don't look very creative at all even with Shakiri back and I, I did notice that Shakiri set up the goal and set Saido on his way for that chance um i think there is there's something that we just you know we're just not quite oh, i'm trying to think of the word we're just not quite all together yet and yes. for 10 games into the season Sometimes you may have to expect that with new signings, but uh, I'm yet to see a performance that's particularly wowed me this season. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that is particularly harsh on the Arsenal and Man U games. Arsenal, I feel we did get lucky. We, we, it was a great you know, experience and everything, but we did get lucky. And Man United, similarly, we, it was a great performance, but I don't know if the if the overall display from defence and forward players, you know, wild me. Um and I but I don't think this has been true since about Bournemouth away two seasons ago when we won three one. So perhaps we just have I just have to uh reevaluate my expectations of what this Stoke side is capable of producing. Yeah. Because I'd say based on the performances so far, we're about good enough for 13th at best, which is where we are. Um, I, I, I can't see us progressing much higher based no. on current performances. Yes. Um, however, I did see enough in that Watford game uh, to suggest that we won't go down, which is a big positive. Um, and certainly the likes of Crystal Palace and Bournemouth not getting wins you know, sort of alleviated some fears, I'd say. Uh, Chris, are you, are you like clinging on to, to those little strands of optimism? I, I think, I think you have to, because if you look at our form across what is, what the first third of the season, if you had to continue that across the rest of the season, then that is essentially relegation form i know that will spells of good games will come and go we won't be playing as many difficult opponents as we did in the opening spell of the season but you you do we we need to see this team improve and i'm still not sure that that we are doing that i don't as as much as i'm really happy about yesterday's result um i think on a bigger picture it's there's almost a notion that this has elated all pressure on Mark Hughes and the the, the social media from the club yesterday certainly mm. took a little bit of a, a snide dig at the fans. Um, and well, I think I think that's been the kind of the club's whole attitude this last week. Uh, there was a few choice quotes from Mark Hughes in his pre-match press conference, which is like, "Oh, it's only a two-game losing streak." Whatever, yeah. what's everyone getting toward. And I don't mind that, maybe, just, if it motivates him to, to pull his finger out of his arse. But I what? guess it just seem, it just smacks of, like, it just smacks of being a bit snide. Yes. And certainly, if, 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 you, if you want to dig us out for having a go at Hughes and then Mark Hughes wins, you know what, fair enough. Because we're all happy at the end of the day that we've won. But it just seems a bit like... It's all a bit pointed. It's not like, look at us, look at Mark Hughes, look at this great thing we've done. It's like, oh, you doubted him, didn't you? Yeah, take yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I think the thing that annoyed me, like in his post-match thing, Mark Hughes, he said something along the lines of, if you compare us, uh, the points tally from the last few games against the teams, the same teams last year, then, you know, we're doing however many points better off. And it's like, well, that... The, that's not the point of the criticism that's coming your way, Mark Hughes. It's not that we are not 
why not getting the results? But obviously, it's been enough to keep us in the league. It's the fact that we are pretty dire in some of our performances. And I don't think that there's um, a credible belief that Stoke are a changed team on the back of a 1-0 win away to Watford. As good as that win was, and as great as it feels to go into next this next week and actually be able to talk about a Stoke win... I don't feel that this is like a turning point. And I would still say that in the long term, I think this team would be better off in the future with Mark Hughes going. Just because I don't think... I I, I struggle to believe that Mark Hughes and that management team can turn this around and turn it around and make it something successful as, as successful as the ambition was shown as, at the start. And I think... That's kind of the problem. There's not, it's not that I'm expectant of anything, uh, like, like you know, Stoke to be challenging for a league or something. But when Mark Hughes came in, there was this promise of we're going to play better football. We want to challenge for going up the table, and at the moment we're not playing better football. And they're talking about well, you need to be realistic and understand uh, our position in things. And it's like accepting of mediocrity. As I say, I would be happy if Stoke finished mid-table and played exciting football. I'm, but, but I can't honestly say that I come away from all games with Stoke and think, oh yeah, do you know what? We, we played some good stuff there. Again, it's, I'm going down a really negative trail with it. I'm re- I am really happy that we won. Like, but yeah, it's more... Uh, and, and, it, sorry to interrupt but I, I resent the... I, I feel like I need to throw Twitter in the bloody bin because... I just like please do <laughs> you, you can't you cannot express any kind of uh like slightly negative slightly you know doubtful opinion without like being accused of not enjoying the win it's like yeah 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 it's like it's it's the whole bad fan or you know ungrateful you know you want us to lose don't you crap which kind of perpetuates when we're on a bad run. And then when we get a good result, you know, these fans pipe up saying, oh, you, you negative and blah, blah. And uh, yeah, it, it really just makes you sick of, of Twitter. It, and, it you know, it, and it comes across in other places like the Oatcake message board as well. Um, I, I just wanted to uh, talk to you for a second about uh, a question we've got in from Michael Forbes. I've been thinking about Stoke a lot lately. This is likely all a bit too much for Twitter or a hastily written DM, but I'm a big fan of the pod, and this is the best way I can sum up my thoughts is process matters. Here's a question for the panel. How often over the past 20 months have win and draws been the result of randomness and or good fortune? And how often have the wins and draws been the result of strong tactics, smart selections, and in-game management? And this is something I feel... um, it's a good question because there are certain occasions where we don't give the manager enough credit and there's certain occasions where we kind of um you know pick pick our wounds and just like put put a defeat down to bad luck for example when in actual fact there are real reasons for it in terms of how many points we you know we've got or lost down to luck you know that's going to be incredibly hard to work out but I think it, think in terms of this season um Arsenal, I'd say we got lucky. Uh, I don't think that's unfair to say. There was the Lacazette uh, offside goal, yet yeah, which was offside, yes, but you know most of the time the linesman doesn't give doesn't flag for that. There are certain occasions this season where uh, we have rode our luck a bit in terms of individual decisions and individual goals and things, but I would say uh, in terms of our approach our in-game management, our tactics, the, I don't want to say luck balances itself out over the course of the season because I think that's a bit of crap, really. But I, I think, in general, Mark Hughes has us playing about where we are in the league. So I think that in terms of league position and points tallies, we, we've, we're about fair. It's about fair. Yeah, I think I think that... Yeah, that sums it up quite well. Like, I, I wouldn't be able to, without doing any massive in-depth analysis, I wouldn't be able to give an accurate uh, summary. But I I would 
I would probably edge more on the side that we, some of our wins, what am I, I don't know, I don't want to say that some of the wins have been lucky, like, mm. and, that, and that it's all down to luck, and my, like, and all our losses are down to tactics, because obviously that would be unfair, but it certainly feels like, well, well, from, from a, from an analysis point of view of the team, it doesn't feel like there is a, a strong strategy in place, and so you can't, lay blame or no maybe you can lay blame I, d- I don't think that the team is that well drilled in terms of a big tactical philosophy mm. so that will hinder us in terms of wins and it will weaken us in terms of a defense especially if we're coming up against a well drilled team now obviously there are occasions where we have clearly got into a game with a game plan and it has paid off I think that is definitely the case um, yesterday I think as aggravating as it could be to sit back and defend. I think that's what the Stoke team were told to do. And for the most part, we did a very good job at doing it. Um, But I don't know. I I go back to the point we've always made that I don't feel Mark Hughes is a very tactical manager. And so Mm. I I think he does does believe in the individual. I'm sorry, Chris. The the sight of Chupo up front uh, kind of reaffirmed that suspicion because Chupo's not a striker. I'm really not. Um, I don't think Ramadan Sobi's best suited to this three-four-three system. I don't. I don't think. I still think the wing backs are an issue, despite them playing well yesterday. And and despite my love for Mamjouf, I'd, I'd, I'd much rather him play further up the pitch. Um, what today was? Oh, sorry. What yesterday was was something we'd have been absolutely giddy for had Tony Pulis been the manager. Yeah. Because that was yeah. an archetypal Pulis away from home shithousing. And whilst it's reassuring that Mark Hughes' teams can do that, I worry that the Mark Hughes teams of, like, even the season before Bojan arrived, even the season, like, where Stephen Ireland became a key player for us and we had Arden Wingy and players like that, that Stoke, I don't think, exists is that too? Is that too far? No, like I, I would a, agree. A, a quick counter-attacking, dangerous going forward side. I don't think we're that anymore. And yeah. I think what we are is a team that suits being on the back foot and nicking a goal, which some fans will accept, it, some fans won't accept. For me, it's not a case of like accepting Pulis ball or not. It's it's a case of, is this what we're aspiring to? Because yeah. there, there's no indication from the club or Mark Hughes that that they are aspiring to play how they used to. It's it's kind of just grabbing the points where you can and yeah. and proceeding with it. Um, sorry, and another quick point I want to raise before we start the second half is Troy Deeney, absolute bloody thug. Get him banned. I don't. I don't know if he can be banned no, retrospectively. He got a, did he get a yellow for yeah, it? Yeah, he got a yellow for it at the time. But fucking hell, what a what an absolute knobhead. Absolutely. What I not funny, but what I found quite I don't know bemusing about the situation was that they've got like he's grabbed Joe Allen round the neck and then they're both holding on to each other and they're both kind of like laughing in each other's face and it's like that when you see mates on a night out and they've got a bit too uh, I don't know Larry or whatever and they're like. They've got confrontational, but all they can do is like laugh about it because it's too awkward. I don't know. It was yeah. It was a it was a very weird moment. Um, I don't think he can be banned for it though. But that's a shame because it was awful. Not nice. Mm. Yeah. So uh, I think that that's a good place to end our discussion of the Watford game. Uh, uh, just a note about coming episodes i'm going to be taking a little bit of a break from the podcast uh, it's not a permanent break but i think uh it's just going to be a bit better for my sanity if i uh, <laughs> if i perhaps don't have to uh commit to every episode every week but uh chris chris I'm knows here. how to manage this ship and will will definitely have some good people on the pod in my absence, and in the absence of Ben, who, as you may well have noticed, uh, hasn't been here recently as well. But uh, if you want to appear on the podcast, if you want to present or uh, contribute 
your opinions, then by all means slide into our DMs and and we'll see where we can go from there. But uh, 75 episodes, pretty decent going, I think. So uh, thank you very much for staying with me for that. And I'll be back (laughs) before you know it. Don't worry. Uh, Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Dave. See you in the second half. Go on, Stoke. Wizards of Drivel podcast. A place for the love of the game. What I love about football is just the the random hugs that happen after goals with strangers in the crowd. A place for unadulterated emotion. The talk of the Tony Pierce John and that, I'm going to be crying in the street in a second. A place for bold predictions. I've put it public that I don't think Crouch is going to score a goal again for us in the league. A place for expert insight. I'm, I'm with Stan Collymore of all people. Stan, you watch a lot of football. And if all those areas were not covered... Pulis would go absolutely ape in the dressing room at us. And a place for hashtag deploy and goy. It's a big moment in his career. It's a, a big moment in his life, probably. I can't help but feel entirely responsible <laughs> for what just happened. The Wizards of Drivel podcast. A place for Stoke City. Now this is Trump's podcast. Uh, John, your book, Fair Game, Tackling Politics and Sport. I was wondering if you could just kind of introduce the book for us and tell us kind of what what set you on the path to writing it is that the first question or do you want me to just yes sorry yes all oh, right sorry do you want to ask me again and i can make it no worries at all yeah dave just quick dave are you recording as well yes i am yeah okay right well let's just start there then <laughs> uh okay so uh john your book fair game tackling politics in sport i was wondering if you could tell us like what set you on the process of writing it? Well, actually, it was just Saturday, one of February, uh, 2014, a rather cold, wet, miserable day, and I was watching the opening ceremony of the Winter Olympics in Sochi, and I just thought of something eerily similar going on there because you know I, I've been working as a journalist, I've been involved in sports as a not very good junior athlete, but I've always been keen ever since a young age. And it, <laughs> there was strange memories actually of 36. I, I, I don't know why. I just felt there was something not right because compare that ceremony with what happened in Beijing in 2008, compare it with uh, Danny Bowles, London 2012. It was clearly Putin's games, and indeed it had been signalled ahead as something like that. So it didn't come as a, quite a surprise. And so that just got me thinking about not just 36 but other events uh, in sport. And I went to the, the publisher with a pitch, uh, pitch publishing, as it happens, and. Uh, came up with other examples, uh, a lot of it orientated towards Britain, it has to be said, also Ireland, because um, a couple of the GAA is an overtly claims not to be a political organisation, that would be disputed by the GAA, especially now, but certainly was in the past. And so I put together what are 20 episodes, which I consider, there's very much a personal take, the, the most important events that have happened in sport, and it's not always malevolent like Berlin 1936 was. Sochi, we know the full truth of that now. I didn't know it at the time, but now with all the uh, state allegations, allegations of state doping and what have you, we do know the full extent, and ironically, as it happens, everybody's going off to the World Cup in Russia next year, so <laughs> happy days. But, you know, but there are events in sport and when politics make, but it's sometimes it's been often for the good. I mean, the most obvious example being Mandela in, in 95. It's all by accident, but he embraced the African sport of rugby. It was their sport. It's not his. He was he was a boxing fan. He was a soccer fan. That's the that's sport of the black people in South Africa. Cricket's a bit more mixed. Definitely not rugby. And, but he embraced it. He, he wore Francois Pinot's number seven shirt. It, 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 and it was, it was a special moment. But there have obviously also been the tragic moments. And so, but Munich 72, 36 years on from Berlin, as it happens. Uh, Bloody Sunday, 1920, thinking of the GAA. All those events. And so I just wanted to chronicle them and uh, just give my take on it, every indiv- individual ones. People might disagree with some of the conclusions I made. That's fine. But I just wanted to put those events out there. Mm. Yeah. There's kind of a reaction to when people suggest that certain sporting events have political connotation. There's a, a lot of people who bristle at them who, and say football, particularly football and politics, shouldn't mix. I mean, is, was there ever a time they weren't mixed? I think there are 
I think a few points to be made there. First of all, I think sometimes you have to separate uh, international sport from club and domestic sport. And that's difficult, especially these days, more so these days. Uh, but you know, it, it, it wasn't the case when the public school boys in England codified football, rugby and all the rest of it. It was when countries started to compete against each other it was actually, ironically enough, the founding of the Olympics, the first games with de Coubertin in, in 1896. <laughs> actually, there was a, a movement, Lord Clarendon, who was uh, in charge in uh, the Olympics uh, during the, the time of the Moscow Olympics. He actually proposed getting rid of national teams. He just felt, because of the furore over that and then the subsequent boycott of, of LA in 84, he thought it would be better just to have elite athletes. Now, in many ways, that also went against the spirit of the Olympic movement because you know, we do want to see, you know, Eddie the Eel in the swimming pool and all the rest of it, Eddie the Eagle, you know, on the ski. <laughs> we, don't want, we don't want to see all that. So it, it kind of goes against all that. Uh, I mean, the short answer is, is yes, perhaps in the early days, but I think, I think especially the turning point was 36. It was, I'm afraid, it was Goebbels. Adolf Hitler had no interest in sport whatsoever, absolutely none. But it was Goebbels, though, who saw that as an international opportunity to showcase Nazi Germany. And he did it quite, I hate to say it, he did it quite brilliantly, but he did it ruthlessly and he did it quite tragically. Even one of the uh, architects of the Olympic Village uh, was, was, uh, was forced to take his own life, if, basically, because he had Jewish links and they didn't want him in the way. That's, that's how terrible that event was. And so... That set a, set a pattern. The, the idea, the original idea, is very laudable. Of, you know, the public school boy idea of it's people games rather than at war. Now, with one notable exception, the football war, which even then that really wasn't anything to do with football. To be honest with you, it, it, that that's not quite been achieved. It, it, politics and sport will clash, and it, you'll, you will have. You'll have politicians claiming no, it doesn't. You'll have a you'll you'll have the athletes claiming no, it doesn't. You have the fans like ourselves claiming no, 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 it doesn't, and the administrators in particular. But you know, I've got in front of me actually because a letter from Margaret Thatcher to Dennis Follows. Dennis Follows was uh, in charge of the World Cup in England in '66. He was in charge of the organisation of it. By 1980, he was in charge of the British Olympic Association, and I had the nightmare of. Uh, telling Margaret Thatcher he was going to send a team to the Olympics. And she, she wrote, in an ideal world, I, I would share entirely the philosophy of the Olympic movement that sports should be divorced from politics. Sadly, however, this is uh, no longer a realistic view. That was her excuse for basically trying to, to order a boycott of the Olympics. So the only problem was their own backbenchers wanted the, uh, the, Lions, the Lions, the British and Irish Lions, to go to South Africa, which at the time was supposedly uh, being boycotted uh, for apartheid. So that one didn't work. It, it, it's very difficult to think of a time uh, when uh, politics and sport didn't clash. But it doesn't always, as I said earlier, it doesn't always clash for Machiavellian reasons. Sometimes it's by accident. It's not actually deliberate. It's not politicians, as it blatantly was in in, uh, in terms of Moscow. It, it's occasionally it just it just so happens and i think the, the fact that we do divide along national lines it's inevitable to be a, a, a blunt about it if if i could just make a point with that one day because yeah, it's on. like it, it's, it's really really interesting that um that you would you'd say john about you know 1936 olympics being this uh machiavellian um showpiece for the for the nazi state but i think there's definitely an argument to suggest that learning from that the the olympics games and the world cup to some extent especially with russia and qatar in the next uh few years that, that these these showpiece events are are massive for for countries to almost announce themselves onto the world stage i think that was maybe a case with the beijing olympics like it, it definitely felt like um a china coming out party if you know what i mean um and i'm not to, i'm not to say there's anything sinister about that but like if you look at like the olympic games and the world cup and things around that that there is definitely a, an intertwining of the political the, the government or whoever and and the sporting groups to create this national showpiece because i mean it's it's quite obvious like london 2012 provided a lot for the economy the the 
politicians want it to do well and so it doesn't always necessarily have to be this this sinister thing i think for for us as football fans the sinister side well not even sinister side the side that is so controversial is when um personal politics meets with club football and such so when there are controversial events that are either been protested or or recognized or whatever that's where things get a bit more murky shall we say well, I, I agree, except uh, with most of that, except to the point you have to remember that what Goebbels wanted to do was to give a false image of, 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 of Nazi Germany. He wanted it to give an image of being a nice, inclusive, welcoming society. It wasn't that at all. And so it, it was on a grander scale. And, 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 and that was being manipulated uh, on, on the, and so, so I mean, I, I, I take your point. I mean, in terms of London, in terms of the self-worth, well, that's where, basically, in criticising uh, other regimes uh, for for embracing the Olympics, we, we can be just as guilty. In Great Britain, you can you can, you can accuse of financially doping athletes. I mean, I can remember you know, Atlanta 21 years ago, uh, GB only won one gold medal. <laughs> now that's unthinkable these days, and and and, and so and so because, and that's and that's a good thing because John Major and, and others recognised that you know money needed to be pumped in. How that money spelt spent rather is another issue. Whether it should be spent on elite athletes and whether more should be spent on grassroots, that's an entirely separate discussion. But yeah, no, I, I take your point. Uh, you know, as for protests, well, sometimes. Uh, is that a good or is that a bad thing? As we're seeing with the NFL, with Colin Kaepernick, and we saw, you know, and we saw, I, and we saw, and we saw with uh, the, one of the, you know, one of the stories I cover is, is the Black Power salute and uh, Tommy Smith, John Carlos, and Peter Norman, who was of course white, and uh, and plenty of a program was taped on him. Now they're all treated, uh, fated as heroes uh, <laughs> in sport. And that photograph is one of the most iconic in sporting history. Yeah, and it's and it's on the cover of your book as well, John. It, it definitely is. Yeah, fair game tackling politics and sport pitch publishing. <laughs> Thanks, I'll get the I was just going to say before, like you move on, Dave. That I like. I think a lovely way to sum what you were just saying up, John, is that um, I think people's opposition to some areas of politics isn't that politics and sport shouldn't be intertwined. It's that the politics that they don't like and sport shouldn't be intertwined. So if you, for whatever reason, if you're against American football has taken the knee, that you will feel, oh, and politics and sport shouldn't be uh, intertwined. But singing a national anthem at the start of a game, that's absolutely fine. It's, it's more a case of if you disagree with certain politics, that's a, that politics should be in the, in the sport, if you, if you get what I mean. I think there's an element of that, and I think that, that was very much in the defence, both the Rugby Football Union and certain members of the Conservative Party uh, em- employed that argument during the uh, course of the boycott of South Africa. Uh, it's interesting, actually, because uh, nobody bat an eyelid at FIFA and, for, for that matter, the Olympic movement uh, imposing in the early 60s a, uh, a boycott on South Africa. It was it was here. It was, first of all, the cricket and the, and the Dolivera affair. And then, uh, consistently, uh, uh, rugby. Uh, but even then, in hindsight, as I mentioned Mandela, when the rugby authorities decided that, well, they weren't going to throw the South Africans out of uh, world rugby. They weren't going to order boycotts of um, stopping tours to South Africa. But, by the way, we're setting up this thing called the, uh, the World Rugby World Cup uh, on a par with the uh, football version, the soccer version. And, and, by the way, South Africa, you can't turn up. And that actually was quite a massive blow to South Africa. And pride. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it is an odd one. That I mean, it, it is sometimes the case that if we we oppose your worldview, then it's uh, it's wrong for a protest. But if, if, if in other cases, oh, 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 it's perfectly fine. So there's an element of hypocrisy there. No, I accept that. Yes. Uh, to take a kind of a Stoke twist on this, well, Stoke. Um, Sir Stanley Matthews uh, obviously features in one of the events uh, you cover in the book. The infamous England team joining in the Nazi salute in Germany. Do you think this event has kind of been forgotten in English football history? Because obviously in in hindsight it's an event they're definitely not proud of. And do you have any uh, do you think there is 
there should be sympathy for the England players being put into that position. Uh, on the on on the uh, yeah the latter point definitely I, I do feel I, I I do feel that even though Stan Cullis refused and the following day it's quite quite bizarre because uh, Aston Villa went out with it, the England team and indeed the Villa centre forward whose name escapes me it shouldn't do but I'll, I can look it up but uh, he played in both games and the following day in Berlin's Olympic Stadium which was also full capacity <laughs> Aston Villa played what was effectively the Austrian national team playing as a Germany 11. It was just after the Anschluss, just after Germany uh, gobbled up uh, Austria. And they refused, and all hell broke loose over that. Uh, and, and they were made in a subsequent club game in Stuttgart to actually actually do it. They refused the day after uh, England, in, England had done so. And, and, and there was immense pressure, but... I think one point about that, and your point about it being forgotten, I don't think it's quite been forgotten. I don't. I think it's just uh, politely ignored. Really, is one of those sad events in, in history. I think what it does show is it's a shambles that football administrators uh, can be, and uh, we have to learn lessons from history. And I'm afraid, listening to and hearing Greg Clark last week, the FA chairman, and the FA chairman back then was Stanley Rouse. He definitely. Uh, hung the players out to dry in the press. Uh, Clark's behaviour over the past week, over the, the uh, uh, dismissal of Mark Sampson and the Elena Luco case, it's just been utterly shameful. And, and again, today at the FA Council, it was, just, it was a speech made, oh, well, there's no public trust in the FA. Well, actually, mate, <laughs> you've got something to do with that because you, you're, you're in charge of it. Uh, and, and if they, you know, took a, a look at the papers of Stanley Rouse, they took a look at the papers of... Uh, People like Thompson and after the war, and it just you know picked up, not necessarily my book, but any history book. They 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 you know they think and I go you know it's now 2017, and in many ways in terms of the organisation, in terms of the way we treat the players, who are very different now as the multimillionaires and all that. But in, in actual terms, as treating them as sportsmen, forget all the money, forget all that, but actually sportsmen representing your country, and sportsmen. Uh, in an environment in which the FA is supposed to be running, it seems as though, in, you know, in eighty odd years, that uh, very little has been learnt. Yeah, absolutely, and definitely in the case Sorry. of Enia Luko, she she definitely wasn't a multi-millionaire top sportsman, and and you can there's like worrying overtones uh, from from the FA's behaviour, and uh, I completely agree. It was completely disgusting. On sort of uh, club football, um, I'm interested. I went to St. Pauli in the summer. Obviously, a club that's whose fan base is very uh, kind of politically active. They've got a very strong left wing identity. And there's also clubs in Italy. I mean, Roma have had another. Uh, sorry, not Roma. Lazio have had another shameful case recently with uh, incidents of anti-Semitism prompting Syria to read passages of Anne Frank's diary before this weekend's games and there are numerous examples of, on the continent where their fan bases or clubs seem to have certain political identities we could probably think of a few particularly left-wing or right-wing clubs between us but in British football it doesn't seem that overt I think I don't think there's many clubs who you would say they have a particular well social I, I, I think Scott I think social, Scottish commentators might disagree. Oh, yeah, de definitely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, absolutely. You know, and, and I'm not just thinking of uh, uh, Celtic and Rangers. I mean, I, I, in Edinburgh, too, but I was mm. watching the, the Hearts Hibs derby last night, and you could see the, the passion afterwards. And having, and I remember going, I went to a Hearts game, and it wasn't actually uh, the day out, it was the day before going to, to a rugby international at Moneyfield, and at the Hearts ground is not far away. And you could, you could actually sense because, because it was Ireland playing Scotland and uh, there was a little bit of antipathy towards anybody walking around in green and it, it, it's weird uh, but that it, I, I would agree in England we don't have that problem thank God uh, the, yeah well, wh why do you th why do you think that is do, do you, is there any particular reason for that I, I well, the, the reasons in Scotland are fairly obvious in terms of sectarianism yeah. and uh, I and that didn't actually manifest itself in terms of Irish immigration to uh, the Northwest. Manchester United has always had a strong Irish Catholic following. It's uh, been owned by Catholics. 
um, his greatest managers, Busby, was, for example, a, quite a devout Catholic, a very devout Catholic. And, but then, you know, at Liverpool, there was a time Everton was seen as a Catholic club, but all that disappeared because I think that society, perhaps in England, is uh, is a little different than it is in Scotland. And it's a bit, much bigger country, and the, uh, the the children, the grandchildren, the immigrants became part of the community. It never sort of coalesced in, in the quite curious way it did in Scotland. That and the relationship between Scotland. And Ulster in particular, and the rest of Ireland is probably different than it is between England and Ireland. So it's a very difficult one to explain that. And, and I think, I think too, uh, the splits in English sport were more along socio-economic lines. That's most obvious in rugby, with rugby league obviously splitting from rugby union. Rugby could have been, if it had, if it wasn't for that split, a working-class sport alongside association football. It didn't happen. Uh, Soccer grew up as a working class, working man's sport, and there weren't the same uh, tensions along uh, sectarian lines that uh, we've had, unfortunately. With it, it's got to be said, it's a minority of, of clubs in Scotland. It's only it's only uh, the two Dundee clubs, Edinburgh and Glasgow. It, it's, it's not elsewhere. Though having said that, the one club in the back of my mind is obviously Spurs and uh, living down here in London and occasionally with West Ham and occasionally Chelsea fans, there there are examples of anti-Semitism there, not quite in the scale of uh, Lazio and Roma, but although, funnily enough, uh, Roma and Lazio, Lazio fans did gang up together a couple of years ago to uh, in what was clear anti-Semitic attack on Spurs fans in, in Rome. So... And incidentally, the only time a Nazi flag flew over an English football ground was in the, the uh, reverse fixture of the uh, famous Nazi salute game in the 1938. The, the game in 1936, uh, England played Germany. England won 3-0 and the Nazi flag uh, flew above White Hot Lane, the only time it ever flew above a sports ground. So, wow. <coughs> But that, again, it's a rare example. And I wouldn't even describe, to be honest with you, uh, Spurs as a Jewish club now, it's just another football club. But you know, in, 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 I don't think uh, club politics. <laughs> there are tribal rivalries, which uh, supplant any uh, political, religious uh, rivalries. I think I think it's 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 enough for Stoke fans to slag off Port Vale or vice versa, and it's enough to have a rivalry with with without without getting into any much more uh, overt uh, political uh, uh, nonsense. I think I mean, I should, which, which is a good thing. Yes, definitely, absolutely. It, it's just it, it's really really interesting that like I mean football is seen as the working man's game across all the entire world and it's just really interesting that in europe on, well on the continent rather you would find clubs with such distinctive political wings of support whereas that is something that really really hasn't taken hold in in well in england especially um and i don't know it, when whenever you hear people speak about some some of these things it's described as well it's just not very british is it is it like i mean you see in europe the the ultras the the ultra supporters with their banners and everything and there's something seen as not very british about that and i just wonder if it's something to do with just the 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 culture of sport football in particular on the continent and fan support that lends itself more to these um to these identities than than english football does it's so it, think, is, it is really interesting. I think again, just as just as exciting uh, Scotland, you, you look. You, you, sometimes you have to be careful. I think you look at a, di- a different models. In Roma was set up by Mussolini. He he founded the club, you know, and Lazio was also a fascist club. And it's how these. I think we forget how long-standing uh, English uh, professional football clubs are, including our own, the second oldest in, in the world. You know, for heaven's sake, you know it's uh, uh, and. That is much more of a, of a modern sport when you know, English people took AC Milan was founded as a cricket club. <laughs> it was, it wasn't, uh, you know, it, 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 the, the foundation of these clubs is very different. It's very recent, and it mirrored perhaps the whatever political regime was in place in those countries at the day. They had to have uh, people who were. Uh, 
amenable to them being set up to uh, to be to be run on professional lines and quite often in what were dictatorial countries that obviously invo involved uh, dancing with the devil as it were with, with those with political leanings uh, and and that was certainly the case of uh, Roma and Lazio and maybe 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 elsewhere uh, and and they and again, there may be social and cultural. There may be social and cultural reasons, but I, I think I think it's. I'm not really an expert on European and South American football, to be perfectly honest. But, uh, I think, in, in thankfully, for for the most part, with the Scottish exceptions, and, and as I say, that's a. There's only a few there. We don't have that problem uh, in, on on these shores. Yeah. Well, speaking of dancing with the devil, uh, we'll move on to the kind of forthcoming World Cups in. Russia and Qatar, I suppose. I mean, uh, Russia, I personally, I think most people have serious problems with, and Qatar, likewise. Uh, but um, I suspect a lot more people will, will not, perhaps not turn a blind eye, is perhaps the wrong phrase, but will accept a World Cup in Russia, whereas... I suppose in Qatar it, it's kind of more immediate to the actual hosting of the World Cup itself in that people are are dying and have died constructing the actual stadiums for the event. Now, I appreciate they're both different situations, but what does it say about football that there is a certain degree of toleration for what these two countries do and are doing uh, because there's going to be a football match on? I'm... Well, we have to go back to 2010 and set Blatter and all that, and uh, you know, look, still, I mean, that's the, the FBI is still investigating it. Loretta Lynch is no longer the Attorney General of the United States, but even though Trump's taken over, they haven't dropped the inquiry as to how those votes took place. So I don't think quite a blind eye has been taken. It's too late for Russia, and the irony was that what Blatter wanted then was a stitch up between Russia and the United States, and he didn't get it. Uh, and I, I think. In answering your point about whether it's easier to contemplate in Russia, and I totally agree with you because you can say the very outset, uh, you know, it was watching Putin all those years ago opening the Winter Olympics, which made me write my book in the first place. But but Russia is historically, traditionally, a, a football playing country. You know, as I was a kid, Stowe used to think about banks being better than Yashin and stuff like that. You know, they were the two greatest goalkeepers in the world. You know, Yashin slightly predated banks, and, and, and so from that point of view, everybody, except in terms of the doping program, I, I, I think football in particular has a problem because it seems in doping in generally it seems to be be in denial. Over the extent of it and the importance of it, More so, it's no good just saying in track and field. It's uh, they've got a problem cycling, it's got a problem swimming, it's got a problem weightlifting, boxing, etc. I'm afraid the McLaren inquiry, the Water inquiry, he's the, the, his independent uh, uh, inquiry for Water. It did show that there were examples of state-sponsored doping in uh, Russian domestic football, and yet we've turned a blind eye. And I think we've turned a blind eye because that, that's very much. I mean that. We have FIFA, which basically, uh, as an as a organisation which I don't think, as it stands at the moment, can be reformed. I'm sorry to be so pessimistic about that, <laughs> but that, but that, that's that's the way it is. And I think even as football fans, we're guilty of just, uh, even those of us like myself who follow other sports, guilty of saying, well, you know, that 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 you know, doping in sport and and, and state-sponsored doping, whether whether it be the Eastern Bloc. In the 70s and early 80s, and whether it's Putin now, well, that's that's just another. It's 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 not uh, football. It's only the Olympic sports. It's not true. It's absolutely not true, and, and it ought to be a concern. But it's not a concern at, at domestic level. Now, <clears throat> lots of reasons for that. Um, I would say money and commerce being uh, the biggest imperative there. You know, the football association by taking a team to uh, Russia next year will make a lot of money. If, if hopefully the both both Ireland teams will go there, if, if one or the other goes, that both those associations will make a hell of a lot of money. It, it will actually make much more of a difference to Irish sport, whether both in Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, than uh, to the sport in England, because it will help to fund uh, uh, grassroots projects there. And in, in a way, probably the FA uh, won't do here. So <laughs> I'm afraid it, 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 it's it's a depressing picture I'm painting. I know, but that that's the case <laughs> in, in terms of Russia. 
Guitar, I, I, I actually don't think it's too late, to be honest. I, I, I am not so certain that there was, that World Cup will go ahead, but we'll, we'll see. But the only problem there, again, and we go back to the era of boycotts, we go back to the, the times that they'll call for athletes not to go to Russia, not to go to uh, South Africa. Well, there was, we were still trading with those countries, for heaven's sake. And yesterday, only in the House of Commons, Theresa May boasted about the uh, military arms deal with Qatar, which was signed only a couple of weeks ago by Michael Fallon, the Defence Secretary. Uh, she did so in relation to BA workers, BAE workers, possibly losing their jobs over. You know, and so, uh, again, it's a clash of politics and sport. And again, and I think in, in that you ha we have to remember is that sport is not separate from society. Those who like sport sometimes like to claim we're, we're in a little niche of our own, and those who don't like sport claim to think it's not part of it. Actually, sport is a very important part it's, it, 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 of, of uh, civic society. It's very part, and, both, and also the social e economic uh, welfare of society, whether it be at city level at Stoke-on-Trent. We've, we've seen the reports lately of how much Stoke's tenure in the Premier League has meant to the city, the estimates of how much money it brings in. And also, it, it does apply at national level. It applies in staging of a tournament. I mean, that's arguable, but there probably was a residual benefit to London in the southeast, at the very least, for London 2012. Uh, I, I accept it's probably questionable for the rest of the country. West Ham United definitely benefited from it, by the way, but that's another story. As I say, I, 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 think, I don't think it's too late for Qatar, Russia, well... Everybody's going there. Uh, hopefully, it'll be a decent World Cup. Hopefully, it won't be marred by violence. Probably, I mean, probably because Putin will have all the hooligans locked up because he, him and his mates and the uh, Russian security services know exactly who they are, exactly knew, knew who, who went to Marseille uh, last year, etc. So, it, it, I'm, I'm painting, I know, a miserable picture, but it's not always like that when it comes <laughs> yeah. to politics. Well, it's not always like that. <laughs> Well, yeah, definitely. I think um, in in terms of sport and politics in general, yes, there are plenty of de depressing pictures you can take. But also, similarly, I found the the protests of the NFL players to be rather inspiring. And I, I you know, no matter what your your views on that are, there's certainly instances where sport can come together for the collective good, as you mentioned Nelson Mandela and so on and so forth. Um, I'm conscious of time. well, and also. Yeah, yeah, and also as I say, the precursor to that, which was the Black Power salute. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Uh, nice um, question. So, uh, I, I'm so with the the name of the FA has cropped up a couple of times, and uh, in relation to kind of uh, mismanagement and generally being a bit crap. But um, <laughs> I noticed kind of the FA tries to step away from political issues, which. You, I th in, on the whole can be a good thing but I notice they, they seem to be particularly um, vocal about the uh, yeah they, they were particularly vocal last year when it came to the issue of wearing the, the poppy against Scotland and the whole issue of the FA versus FIFA and yes we're going ahead and wearing the symbol it's not really a political symbol FIFA says it is why why is that the issue that uh, the FA get involved with, whereas other issues they kind of just want to leave alone. I think that was, if I'm going to be brutally honest, a classic case of mismanagement, media mismanagement. Uh, it, it felt, for whatever reason, that uh, it, it, it would make a stand against against FIFA he felt it was going to be an easy stand to make because of Poppy and 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 it's not just the, it wasn't just the FA it was the SFA and the FAW and the Irish Football Association as well and the FAI had its own little difficulty over commemoration of 1916 but the, the reason for the, the mismanagement is that the trend to wear poppies on shirts is relatively new and it could have made the case to say look this is it's not a particular case of the British or the English uh, beating their chests about um, being over patriotic no it's it's a symbol of a memorial symbol and it was quite easy to do that get a picture out of uh, 
Jonalome playing at the Stade de France in November to November 11th 2000 against France. The All Blacks wore poppies on their sleeves. They were the first sports team to wear a poppy. No football team, no club team in England had done it before. No national team had done it. It was the All Blacks. They were the ones who pioneered that. A New Zealand, not a British team, a New Zealand team. And they could have actually pointed that out to FIFA uh, and, and just stopped it. And also pointed it out to the national press, for crying out loud. They never did that here, because many people here, I don't think, realise that to be the case. They could have done it with the European and the international press. They didn't. It was just a classic case of media mismanagement. And the daft thing is now, FIFA, FIFA have conceded. For the forthcoming uh, round of, of matches, uh, which is around the, you know, the Remembrance Sunday and Armistice Day, they've said, "Fine, you can wear poppies on your shirts." It was just nonsense, and it could have been, hand it could have been handled a lot, lot better. It wasn't. It, it was, it was crass mishandling, and just going through the archive, you only have to go back to 2000, and there's a great picture of, I'll tweet it later actually, of uh, Jonah Lomu uh, in a tackle with, uh, I can't remember who the French player was, but you know he was handing him off, <laughs> classic. Lomu style, and there is the poppy on his sleeve. Yeah, it, it, and, and as I say, they were the, the All Blacks were the first to do it. It just crass mismanagement once again on their part, I'm afraid. Uh, and why they don't get involved? I mean, to be fair, I think they, although with a kick it out, they have been. Uh, as we were speaking earlier, in terms of the Samson case, they, they have been widely criticised. But I think on the, on those issues. Uh, progress is being made their problem is i think that you may be alluding to this is how they deal with uh, other countries and uefa and fifa who are frankly uh, appalling in trying to uh, clamp, clamp clamp down on uh, um misdemeanors uh, and, and 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 basically vile attacks on sometimes england international players especially underage level uh, uh, more so there than than uh, than the seniors and they haven't really been strong enough. They haven't again stood up for their players, and made, made known to Platini and Blatter in the past and Infantino now uh, that their views known. Quite why that again? I'm going to go back to uh, you know, crass incompetence. I'm afraid I don't wish to be so dismissive, <laughs> but I, I can only think. And, 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 and as I say, they, they, just to do simple media management. It's a simple. It shouldn't actually be down to a matter of PR. It should have been just, in fairness, should be accepted. It was, a, it was, it was a more, it was a remembrance symbol. But if, if just to avoid any doubts, this is what it is. You know, by the way, <laughs> New Zealand, the other side of the world. By the way, it's a different sport. They were the first to do it. You know, quite easy. Well, they didn't do it. But, you know, a question for them, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the phrase uh, "crass mismanagement" has come up a lot, but with with good reason. Um, I'm conscious of time, so Chris, uh, anything from you before we wrap up? Um, I'll be I'll be honest. I think we've we've covered everything. Um, some pretty well, if honest. Um, I suppose for me, I'm just on. I know we've spoken a lot about the year NFL players and them taking a a particular stance at the, the moment. Well, it's not all you, NFL players. That's well, no, yeah, of course. But although I will say they they have unified, they you know the white players have supported the black players, and all black players have taken the knee, but they, they've shown a great deal of solidarity. And again, talking about mismanagement, that's a lot of that is about Trump and how he's responded to it, rather than uh, and, and pouring oil on the water, as it were. In, in my view, as as much as them trying to make a protest of what the protest is actually about, of the treatment of, of blacks, especially young black men in the hands of police in uh, in America. And an issue that, frankly, we don't have here. I mean, it's a, it's a very, very... I, mean, you know, I was talking about the state of race relations and how the FA is handling that. We're nowhere near uh, the same situation as America, in which, for example, NFL... And uh, players, black players up until the 40s and 50s, did not play the sport. Uh, including in my book is Jackie Robinson. The not he wasn't the first black baseball player, uh, a major league baseball player, but but he was the first after to to, to be brought in after there was a, a 60 year, six decade long interlude, uh, and he he very much pioneered. or was the pioneer. He, he was he was uh, a very articulate, uh, intelligent guy that. 
the uh, uh, there the, the, the Brooklyn Dodgers singled out uh, the Brooklyn Dodgers general manager singled out to to to, to bring forward uh, at a time when uh, there was deep segregation in the United States and what we've seen lately the United States maybe in terms of race relations is going backwards and I think that is what the NFL players are concerned about that's what's at the heart of the issue rather than really whether you sing the national anthem or kneel or, or sit up uh, sit down and I think that part of the argument has been lost and maybe that's uh, Trump uh, uh, at his deflective best here, to be perfectly honest it's, it's a slightly different issue from what, what you, you, slightly, you raise but uh, it, it, what they're doing I agree with you I, it, it, it's it's admirable it's but it's again it's something uh, uh, that others will uh, will undo including many Stoke fans will, will vehemently disagree with do you think then and this was my, my my question I was thinking in terms of obviously you have the the on your book cover you have the um, Black Panther the the one arm salute you've got uh, play NFL players taking a knee um, and there are other several incidences of individuals protesting whether that be uh, an individual protest or something collective do you think then that the sport as a whole or individuals who are involved in sport have a power to convey a message to to the general public do they have the ability to sway uh, uh mindset opinion. yeah public opinion or or is it uh, uh, i don't yeah. think they have i don't think they have any more than a hollywood star in in fact, if anything, uh, they've been treated. If, if it's just you know, somebody making a speech or sending something out on Twitter, it would be just treated with suspicion. I, I think with the Black Power salute, it's just the power of the image. I think with Mandela present, wearing this shirt, presenting Pinar with the World Cup, again, it's the power of the image. And sometimes still photos show you more than just the actual moving image. To actually have that with Pinar and Mandela there on the cover as well. Well, uh, cheekily, I put uh, latter. Well, well I, I'd say I put it, but the publisher put uh, uh, <laughs> d- uh, the Russo for the Brazilian Prime Minister and Blatter on, on the front cover too, just to make it a little bit more contemporary. But <laughs> both have gone. And and there's there's the, and, and the the message from '56, the a story m- many people won't know about, but I'd love people to be, to read about, is the blood in the water in Melbourne in '56 when the Hungarian polo team. Who all defected after the after the they won the gold medal, but they played Russia in what was effectively the semi-final, and it was a glorified punch-up. And there's one photograph of one of their players with blood all over his face, and that photograph went all around the world. And it it summed up. It was 1956. It was just after the Russian invasion of Hungary. The reason why they didn't go they, they didn't go back to Hungary, they defected in Australia instead. And 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 that way, and that in itself struck accord with the public without uh, any speeches being made without uh, any uh, tantrums and again the story of uh, joe lewis the uh, heavyweight boxer and max schmeling and, and they've been used on the one hand by again the nazis again goebbels and, uh, and and also joe lewis being used by the americans as a black man who pointing out the land on a minute you know you're not you know, as a, i'm allowed to i'm allowed to compete as a boxer jesse owens is allowed to go as an amateur athlete but I can't play. Uh, I can't play. He couldn't play in the NFL at the time. He couldn't play Major League Baseball. And so, and 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 the great and the great thing, inspiring thing about those their story, they both after the war. Schwelling was in the German army. He survived the war. He, he actually ended up work, working of all things for Coca-Cola. Became a multi-millionaire and helped Joe Lewis out, who, who fell on hard times. And they became great <laughs> friends. That and these are the people cast as you know, the, the American uh, press cast uh, Schmeling as, as Hitler's puppet, and you know. Uh, and, and, and Lewis was, was was their man, and Lewis didn't think he was their man. <laughs> it's, it, it, sometimes these little stories, I think, can inspire people rather than just grandstanding. And and, and I think this is where the, with the current thing with Capadoc and all the rest of it, the, the NFL thing has got out of hand because it's, it's news management, which is all about Donald Trump trying to uh, appeal to his voter base rather than than anything much more uh, stronger and much more uh, considered and, 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 I, and I don't 
well, we'll see how it, how it pans out. I don't see see it going anywhere. Once the Super World bowls out the way, everybody probably will forget about it, and we'll see what happens uh, sort of next season. So, yeah, but yeah, it, your your point is that yes, sportsmen can make a statement. And feel sometimes they have to make. John, uh, Tommy Smith, and John Carlos are very vocal about that. I write about that in the book and about Tommy Smith in particular, about why he made the protest, and he had to do it. And it was <laughs> first things first. Though he had to win a gold medal to be able to do it. And, uh, so there was a sporting achievement there, there, uh, there too. And, that, and, 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 and that's that's what's at the crux of it. And that's that's how you. you, you you, you, people will take notice anymore, you know, and that's maybe where sports stars have the advantage over, say, somebody uh, at an Oscar ceremony just uh, playing to the gallery, as it were. Well, John, thank you very much for talking to us. It's been absolutely fascinating. Um, I'll give you uh, a, cha- a final chance to, to plug your book then and, and tell us where we can buy it and where from. Yeah, it's uh, published. It's Pitch Publishing, who, uh, as you may know, are a great publisher of sports books. I'm working on them with another one to come, but I won't go, be able to go into detail about that until probably in the new year. But Pitch Publishing, it's, it's, you can get, get it direct from them, or it's on online at Amazon, Waterstones, uh, uh, stocked it, and WH Smith as well. So just all the usual places. Uh, it's probably not in the shops anymore. It came out about a year ago, but... Uh, yeah, go online and uh, either direct from Pitch that on their website, pitchpublishing.co.uk, or, as I say, Amazon and uh, Stones, they also have it in stock. Brilliant. Thank you very much, John. Oh, by the way, it's print and ebook, by the way, so if you want to, the, the version on iBooks, that, it, 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 can, it can be got that way too. Brilliant. We'll post a link to it in our description. So uh, thank you, Chris. Thank you very much, Dave. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Chris. Uh, Thank you for your time. Thanks very much for inviting me. I'm, I'm most grateful.